0: following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Please take your Bible and open up with me to the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 3. The Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 3. This morning, we return to our study of this book that stands as the doorway into the New Testament, the doorway into the New Testament. Matthew, a disciple of Jesus Christ, calls the attention of his readers to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, his majestic incarnation, his magnanimous person, his magisterial words His mighty miracles, his merciful ways, his matchless sacrifice, his magnificent resurrection, and of course his marvelous ascension back to heaven. The whole point, the whole point in giving us this gospel narrative is that we would both hear and heed the call to deny ourselves to take up our crosses and to follow after Jesus Christ, to observe all that he has commanded us, according to Matthew 28. This is not a call to earn salvation by rigorous self-effort or self-sacrifice or self-exertion. It's a call to all who are heavy laden To all who labor, that is, to all who are weary and weighed down by the burden of religious legalism that seeks to earn God's favor. That call is for those people. It's a gracious call to come to Jesus Christ, who alone can bring rest to the souls of sinners. So on the one hand, while Matthew portrays entrance into the kingdom as Hard and difficult to the point where we are called to pluck out right eyes if they cause us to sin and right hands if they cause us to err. It's hard because it requires self-denial and taking up crosses on the one hand. while well, on the other hand, he depicts entrance into the kingdom as simply giving up coming to Christ in childlike faith and resting, resting in his arms. Matthew portrays both pictures. So when it comes to entering the kingdom, it involves both war and rest. And it's absolutely critical that we get the order right. It's a war and a fight to do everything you can to make sure that your soul is resting in nothing and no one but Jesus Christ. It's not the other way around. It is not resting in your ability to fight to enter the kingdom. It is fighting to ensure that you are resting by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As strange as it sounds, it's a fight and a war to make sure that you're doing nothing but resting and trusting in Christ alone. That's the goal of Matthew's gospel, to lead you to rest in and follow after Jesus Christ. So as we approach Matthew chapter three this morning, as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the soul sobering words of the true and living God. Matthew chapter three, beginning in verse one. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven Said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we cross over from Matthew chapter 2 and into Matthew chapter 3, we fast forward about 30 years. Luke informs us that when Jesus began his public ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old. Is anyone in here 30 years old? Who's the closest? Think of these young adults over here. Probably far off. I'm I'm not sure what your age is, but can you imagine that? 30 years old, our Savior, when he began his public ministry. Matthew's introduction of John the Baptist and his message about the nearness of the king and his kingdom marks three things. The inauguration of Christ's public ministry, the dawning of the new creation, and the beginning of his conflict with Satan as they will go head to head in the very next chapter. The Gospel of Matthew begins with an emphasis on Jesus's identity as the son of David, as the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the newborn king the promised branch of Jesse, David's father, just when it seemed like David's family tree had been cut off and reduced to a stump after the Babylonian exile, a little shoot, a little branch sprang up and began to grow from this stump, just like Isaiah chapter 11 described. And this shoot, this branch is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. Even in the midst of destruction and exile, God had preserved the royal line of David in order to bring about the birth of his son. As we saw last week, chapter 2 ended with Jesus being called a Nazarene, a word that likely meant branch person, since Nazareth meant something like branch place. So Matthew over and over and over again is announcing that this long-awaited son of David has arrived. And as we saw, he is introduced in chapter three. As we come to chapter three, we discover that with the king, along came the kingdom. Along came the kingdom of heaven. And all of this is announced and heralded by this one that Matthew refers to as John the Baptist. Unlike Luke, Matthew gives us no details of John's birth, his origins, his family, or his predetermined mission as defined by God. And so you're welcome to read about all of that in the early chapters of Luke's gospel when you go home. As I was preparing to preach through Matthew I sought the counsel of an older, more experienced pastor regarding my approach and how would he approach such a long book like this. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, if you're going to preach Matthew's gospel, preach Matthew's gospel. He went on to explain that when he preached through Mark, He spent a good amount of time outside of Mark's gospel and in the other gospels trying to harmonize and consult and put timelines together, which can be good, but we also need to respect each of the four gospels and the themes and emphases that their writers sought to communicate. Matthew rightly assumes that his immediate audience is familiar with John the Baptist. John was a well-known prophet in first century Judaism. Jesus said that among those born of women, there had arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He referred to John as a prophet and more than a prophet, even though we know he was only a man. The religious leaders may have not agreed with John, but they did not mess with John because they knew that the crowds of common people regarded John as a prophet sent by God, and he was. We're even told that Herod Antipas, the king of Judea, feared John the Baptist because he knew that he was a righteous and holy man. I think of the way the kings and, or the queen in the Middle Ages feared John Knox, didn't want to mess with the guy. She knew God was upon him. So he, Herod, feared John. And for a season, at least when Herod was sober, protected John the Baptist and was actually drawn and attracted to John's preaching, Mark tells us. And so understand that when Matthew introduces this man, he is no small figure. Some of the movies portray John as like this You know, barely gathering a crowd out in the wilderness, this was not the case. He may have had no physical appeal, but because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, John grew up with the glory and greatness of God resting upon his life. Jesus called him a burning and shining light. John came forth in the spirit and power of Elijah, who was known as one of Israel's greatest prophets. So it's likely that Matthew didn't feel the need to give a detailed introduction to John the Baptist, partly because his Jewish audience was very familiar with him, and partly because Matthew's main goal is to introduce the one who is infinitely greater than John the Baptist. As we begin, Matthew begins with the phrase, notice, in those days, which appears about 51 times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which Matthew is obviously utilizing because he quotes from the Septuagint word for word in chapter 1, verse 23. What's fascinating is that in the Greek Old Testament, this phrase, in those days, is often found in eschatological passages, that is, passages dealing with the age of fulfillment, or what the Bible refers to as the latter days, which began with the first coming of Christ. Just listen to some of these key Old Testament passages where this phrase, in those days is used in the Greek Old Testament. Joel 3, verse 2 the restoration of the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 6, Yahweh's return to dwell in Zion and Jerusalem. Zechariah eight twenty three: the Gentiles being drawn to the Jews to join them in the worship of Yahweh. Exactly what we see fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And then Jeremiah 3.18, the reconciliation of the northern and southern kingdoms, which we see fulfilled in Acts chapter 8. Later on, in Matthew 24, Matthew will utilize the same phrase to describe the coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so it could very well be that Matthew, when Matthew uses the phrase, in those days, he is following the tradition of marking major Eschatological milestones in the history of redemption. And the time to which he is calling our attention is the time of fulfillment. Mark notes that the very first words of Jesus in terms of his public ministry are the words, The time is fulfilled. The time of fulfillment has arrived because the king and his kingdom have arrived. I want you to notice next, not just the time, but the place where all of this happens. He says, in the wilderness of Judea, it was hot and apart from the Jordan River, mostly dry, though not unpopulated. It was a pasture land where communities of the Aseans lived. These guys were separatists who left the city and the temple due to their conviction that the religious leaders had gone corrupt. However, I don't think that Matthew is just giving us dry facts about where this took place. I believe that there's theological significance to the phrase, in the wilderness. Mark this down, in Hosea chapter 2, the prophet tells us at the beginning of the Messianic age, when God will restore Israel and establish a new covenant with her, he will first Again, before he restores Israel and before he establishes this new covenant with her, he will first allure her and bring her back into the wilderness where he will speak tenderly to her. That is, he will speak to her in the wilderness from his very heart. And isn't it interesting that in the book of Matthew, where we see Emmanuel, God with us, seeking and calling and assembling lost sheep from the house of Israel and then pouring out his blood to establish a new covenant with those people that before all of that, we see Israel being lured back into the wilderness where she hears the voice of God through John the Baptist speaking passionately and affectionately to her, calling her to return to him exactly what we read about in Hosea chapter 2. And Hosea isn't the only prophet to talk about God beginning to restore his people out in the wilderness. Isaiah is filled with this kind of language, as we're going to see. And I'll share just two passages. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15, tells us that when God pours out his spirit upon his people, the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And as you're going to see, John the Baptist is going to go on to talk about fruitfulness that emerges from repentance. Another passage, Isaiah 35, 1, when the Messiah comes to open the eyes of the blind and to unstop the ears of the deaf and to make the lame leap like deer, they will do that because waters have previously broken forth, quote, in the wilderness. It's fascinating that prior to Jesus' miracles of healing the sick and healing the lame, and opening the eyes of the blind, the story actually begins in the wilderness with a man in the water, baptizing people who are being led to repent toward God and to bear fruit for God. Isaiah 35.1 says that the reason the eyes of the blind will be opened and the reason all this healing will happen will be because... Waters had previously broken out in the wilderness. The very location of John's ministry would have stirred the people's expectations of the coming Messiah. That's the setting of Matthew chapter 3. So, who is Matthew talking about? John the Baptist. When is all this taking place? In the days of fulfillment, when the time of fulfillment had arrived. Where is all this happening? In the wilderness. And now, notice what John is doing. Verse 1. John the Baptist came preaching, preaching in the wilderness. He's lifting up his voice to any and all who were drawn to hear his message. For those coming from Jerusalem, this was not a short trip. We're talking about 20 miles through the desert, through the wilderness, which was about a day's journey in that time. And yet they're coming to hear John the Baptist preach. This was truly a move of God, drawing and luring people back into the wilderness to hear him speak through his prophet John. Remember, there hadn't been a prophetic voice in 400 years. The last prophet we read about is Malachi. And after that, 400 years of absolute silence in terms of God speaking to his people through a prophet. And so the news of a prophet out in the wilderness would have spread like wildfire, attracting those with good intentions, those with bad intentions, and those who were simply curious to see what was happening in the wilderness. Well, as we get into the heart of this chapter now, I want to point out the first of three things that this chapter contains, the first of three things, and it's this: a serious message. a serious message. And this message is fourfold. That is, it's a message that centers around four weighty realities. The first, according to verse 2, is the criticality of repentance. The criticality of repentance. The essence of John's message can be boiled down to repentance. The whole point of his ministry was to prepare people for the coming of the king and his kingdom. And the only way to prepare was by repentance. He preached this message to the rich, to the poor, to the religious, to the irreligious, because that was the need. Commenting on John's call to repent, D.A. Carson notes, what is meant is not a merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, But a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance. Likewise, Charles Quarles writes, the imperative repent entails deep remorse and sincere regret for one's sinful lifestyle a decision to forsake that lifestyle in submission to God's authority and the pursuit of a life characterized by obedience to God. And lastly, John Broadus observes that wherever this Greek word is used in the New Testament, the reference is to changing the mind and the purpose from sin to holiness. And the thing to note about this word in verse 2 is that in the Greek, it is a present imperative, a present imperative. Command, which means that what John called his hearers to and what Matthew relating, relating this to all of us now calls his hearers to both then and now is a repentance that begins and continues. It begins and it continues throughout the entire course of a person's life. It is an ongoing reality rather than a once and for all act. John isn't calling people to a life decision. He's not calling them to raise a hand. He's not calling them to walk down the aisle and pray a sinner's prayer. He is calling them to an entirely new way of life, a life characterized by repentance. This was the first message of John the Baptist. As we're going to see in Matthew 4, the first message of Jesus, it was the first message of Peter on the day of Pentecost, and it's what Paul preached again and again. Of course, all of this assumes that every person's way of life and way of thinking are fundamentally off course and in need of radical change. The word repentance in the Greek has to do with a change of mind. And while it may seem like a small thing at first consideration, it isn't. It isn't. Because the mind is the control center of every person. Everything you do flows from how you think and how you reason in your mind So this call to repentance is a call to stop thinking one way and to begin to think another way. It's a call to forsake your way of thinking about life and reality and to start thinking about life and reality the way God in his word describes life and reality. It's to turn from your ways to live and walk in God's ways. It's to forsake a life of delighting in sin for a life of delighting in that which is infinitely satisfying, namely the glory of God. In his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, William Gurnall, in explaining what it looks like to forsake sin, wrote this. To forsake sin is to leave it without any thought reserved of returning to it again. Every time a man takes a journey from home about business, we do not say he hath forsaken his house because he meant when he went out to come to it again. No, but when we see a man leave his house, carry all his stuff away with him, lock up his doors and take up his abode in another, never to dwell there more, here is a man who hath indeed forsaken his house. you might be saying repentance then is impossible. And even if I were to repent, initially, how can I continue in a life of repentance? How can I continue to grow in that? How can true repentance be sustained throughout the entire course of my life? And the answer, biblically, is to fight to ensure that your heart finds its rest, finds its joy, finds its pleasure, and its ultimate satisfaction in that which is objectively and infinitely satisfying the glory and greatness and presence of God. Find me a man or a woman or a child who fights the fight of faith to drink from the ever-satisfying, all-satisfying infinitely satisfying fountain of God's glory by living in the word, meditating upon the word, praying the word, fellowshipping with others around the word and seeking by the Holy Spirit to walk according to the word. And I will show you a person who takes repentance seriously. Sadly, he or she will fall and at times fall really hard, but they will rise up They will shed tears of godly grief. They will be sick to their stomachs because of their folly. But they won't stay there sulking in any of that. They will get up. They they, they may go without food or the comforts of this life for a season in order to sober up and think about what they did. And they will find that ever-satisfying all-satisfying, infinitely satisfying fountain of God's glory and they will drink and they will drink and they will drink until their hearts and minds are bursting with joy in God and that joy will be their strength and their power as they continue to walk in a manner worthy of Christ and his gospel. That's what John the Baptist is calling for. That's the kind of repentant lifestyle that you and I are called to. This is a serious message about The criticality of repentance. But secondly, this message centers around the closeness of the kingdom. The closeness of the kingdom. This is the reason repentance is called for. Look again at verse 2. He says, repent for or because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's close. It's a serious message about the criticality of repentance and about the closeness of the kingdom. It's drawing near. It's about to break forth. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter two dreamt of this kingdom. He saw it as a stone cut without human hands, falling and not only crushing all the kingdoms of this world, but then growing into a massive mountain that filled the entire earth. John has the honor of introducing this stone this kingdom that is about to burst forth and begin to spread. The kingdom of heaven here refers to God's rule and reign through his appointed Messiah and king. The kingdom of God isn't so much about a location, it is about a realm. It's the realm of humanity that, by the grace of God, acknowledges and honors the Son of God, the Lordship of Christ. More than likely, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He uses it 32 times, roughly, in his gospel. The reason he uses kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of God is probably to avoid unnecessarily offending the Jewish people to whom he wrote. They were sensitive when it came to using and writing the name of God. But I also believe that the reason Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God is to emphasize that this kingdom that has come to this world is not of this world. It's of heaven. It's the kingdom of heaven on earth. This will be a dominant theme in Matthew's gospel, which is why I've entitled this series in Matthew, King and Kingdom. But this is the reason behind John's call to repentance. Repent because the kingdom's about to break forth. The kingdom was drawing near, and we know that the reason for that was because the king himself was drawing near and about to reveal himself. When the king arrived, the kingdom will also arrive. In fact, later in chapter 12, Jesus will tell the Pharisees, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, signifying what? It's here because I'm here. Today we live in this time between the arrival of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom, which is why we are called to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. And I believe in that prayer, there's a prayer that God's kingdom, his rule, his reign through Christ would progressively come as the gospel goes forth, as the great commission is executed. But ultimately we are praying for the consummation of that kingdom to come in all of its glory and in all of its fullness. And this has massive implications, friends. The kingdom has arrived just as predicted. And if the arrival of the kingdom, which fulfilled so many Old Testament prophecies and predictions, if, if that has happened, then we can conclude that this kingdom will only grow and spread and eventually be the only kingdom left in the end after God destroys all the wicked kingdoms of this world and ushers his people into the new and everlasting creation. The arrival of the kingdom means the end of your kingdom and the end of my kingdom. The arrival of the kingdom signifies that something has come that will never go away. And that's how you're to think in terms of the kingdom. Hence the call to repent and live for this true and lasting kingdom. We're called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Are you seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Are you living in light of this kingdom that is only going to grow and dominate and eventually cover the whole earth? Or are you still living as if your kingdom and your agenda are supreme? Are you living as though your kingdom will endure? I'm here to tell you today, it won't. It won't. So this is a serious message about the criticality of repentance, about the closeness of the kingdom. But thirdly, it's a serious message about the coming of the king, the coming of the king. Look at verse three. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. Let me read that for you. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord Spoken. It's no small thing for Matthew to tell us that what's happening here is coming right out of Isaiah 40, the turning point in the gospel according to Isaiah, when the time of glory and fulfillment arrive. Isaiah 40 and onward, we will read about the restoration of Israel, the return of God to dwell in the midst of his people, the coming king, the Gentiles coming in to share in the light of Israel and their God. Matthew points back to Isaiah 40 and says, this is that. Prepare in the wilderness, again, in the wilderness, a highway for our God. The picture here is that of Uh, king's servants, going before the king on a rough road. If he was to, to travel to a city, he would go and send his messengers and they would clear the rubble. They'd burn piles of trash. They would clear the rubble in order to announce the coming of the king. John the Baptist is clearing the rubble of sin by calling them to repentance so that when Christ arrives on the scene, he arrives and appears to a ready, repentant people. That's what's happening here. The king back then was coming. The king on this side of history is coming. He was about to break forth in John the Baptist's day. And friends, he is about to break forth today. That's the second thing. That's that's, that's what we're waiting for is the advent, the second coming, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the message is essentially the same. Repent, prepare the way of the Lord. And what's interesting is that when Isaiah writes this, he he is preparing the way for Yahweh. Matthew takes this and applies it to Jesus Christ to signify and to show that this Jesus is Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. The day will come when these words will come to pass. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Prepare the way of the Lord. Our message is essentially the same as John and Matthew, Peter and Paul. He is coming. Remove every obstacle. You don't want to be ashamed that is coming, friend. You do not want to be ashamed that is coming. I heard a well respected pastor say this week one of the means of staying serious about the Lord Jesus Christ is the reality that I could be face to face with him in 30 seconds. Remove every distraction and receive and rejoice in your King. Verse 4 Now, John Warwick. Garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Simple man. But this is a reference also to Second Kings chapter one verse eight, to describe Elijah, who also wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. Elijah, the Tishbite. Friends, the significance of this is that. Matthew is showing that this John the Baptist is this greater Elijah who is to appear before the great day of the Lord. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John the Baptist, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Malachi chapter four ended with this. The very last word before the silence of 400 years was this, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And then what happens? 400 years of silence. And then this greater Elijah appears to prepare the way for Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you in this chapter we have a serious message. But secondly, it also contains a scandalous baptism. A scandalous baptism. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Again, we're talking a day's journey. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I'm calling this a scandalous baptism because it was shocking. It was shocking because the Jews were regarded as God's privileged people. It's scandalous in that it was for Jews who were considered to be God's privileged people. Baptism in this day was known to be for Gentiles outside of the community of the Jews. Whenever they wanted to join the Jews in worshiping the one true God, they would baptize them as an initiation, in a sense, to bring them into the worship of God. Do you see the irony here? The Jews, because of where they're at spiritually at this point in redemptive history, are considered to be the outsiders who, like the Gentiles, need to repent and need to be baptized. And brought in to the kingdom. That's because a kingdom is about to break forth whose citizens are not citizens by natural birth. But are citizens by spiritual birth. Rebirth. You're not born into the kingdom. You're born again into the kingdom. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And then truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again to enter this kingdom. And so here, this repentance seems to be real. It's genuine because they're openly confessing their sins, the ways in which they've offended God and made them ripe for judgment. Notice verse seven, when many... When, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees who at that time were the corrupt religious leaders of the day coming to his baptism, he said to them, O noblemen and highly respected authorities. Now he says, you brood of vipers, you snakes, you serpents. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Were they there to be baptized by John? Were they sent by the religious leaders in Jerusalem to go and investigate what's happening, why the crowds are flocking into the wilderness? They should have read Hosea too. Were they curious? Or were they, because they loved the praise and glory that came from men, were they seeking to gain the applause of the common people by identifying with them and coming to be baptized by John. But it was all for show. We don't know. But John calls him out here. You sons of the serpent, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he calls them. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's important. He's not just calling them for a decision, a show to be baptized and confess a few sins. He's saying, bear fruit from this point on. Let your life show that you are truly repentant. Don't you presume to say, verse 9, to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That was huge for them. There was Jewish teaching in that day that specifically said that if you are a son of Abraham physically, you will share in the inheritance of the kingdom. John's saying, now, don't you dare tell yourself I'm fine because I'm a descendant of Abraham, a child, a descendant of Abraham. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What an irony, right? That actually really did happen. He took hearts of stone and he made them hearts of flesh and he brought people into his kingdom. Even now, he says, the ax is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I told you, this chapter contains a serious message about the criticality of repentance, about the closeness of the kingdom, about the coming of the king. But fourthly, John's message also centered around the certainty of judgment. The certainty of judgment. Look at verse seven. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Often the Bible Describes the day of judgment as the day of God's wrath, the day of God's vengeance when God returns to the sons of Adam and the daughters of Adam the just punishment for their despising of his son and his glory. In that day, God will shatter all the pride of men, all the idols of humanity. He will punish on the day of his wrath. It's certain Verse 10, every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, who in this context will be judged? It's the children of the devil, the brood of vipers, the snakes. This should take us back to Genesis chapter 3, where we read about the offspring of the serpent. They will be the ones who lack repentance, who see no need for repentance, who will be judged. John is bold here. John is a good one to imitate, by the way. He's bold, but as we're going to see, he's humble. He knows himself to be unworthy. He's calling for repentance that produces lasting fruit. Who will be judged? Those who trust in themselves. Those who trust in their heritage, their upbringing. Let me tell you something, friends. God has no grandchildren. He has children that are made children through faith in Christ, alone. So don't say to yourselves, I've grown up in a Christian family. I'm growing up with a dad who's a Christian. I'm safe. There's no safe hiding place except for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's taken hearts of stone and he's turned them into hearts of flesh and he's created a new people for himself out of the Jews and out of the Gentiles. Judgment is certain. Look at verse 10. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. The image is of a guy who has the tree already exposed, the roots exposed, and he's got that axe and he's, he's, he already has it laid there to ensure that when he lifts up that axe, he does not miss that, that spot. And when he does, all nourishment of the tree ceases and the tree falls, cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice he says every tree. The religious, the irreligious, the wise, the foolish, the educated, and the uneducated. The rich, the poor, every tree that does not bear fruit. And what is the fruit in this context? It's repentance toward God. Not just a one-time decision, a lifestyle of repentance fueled by the grace of God. This is a serious message about the certainty of judgment. He continues on. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I think this would have been shocking for these initial hearers. They regarded John as a prophet. Herod feared him, would eventually fear him. The Pharisees didn't mess with him. And for him to say, one is coming after me who is mightier than I, megas in the Greek, greater than I, more massive than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. There was a rabbinic saying in the day that a disciple of a rabbi could do everything in service for the rabbi except carry his sandals because that is the position and role of the household slave. And what John is saying here is that I'm not even worthy to be called the slave of this one who is coming after me. What humility. This humility fuels his boldness. And that's a good example for us. The lower you go in humbling yourself before God, the higher you will go in testifying boldly for God. The closer you are to the feet of your king, you will fear no flesh, no man, no woman. He continues, not worthy to carry his sandals. I'm baptizing you out here with water for repentance. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this would have been drawing imagery back from those that, that, that latter half of Isaiah where the wilderness is mentioned and the voice of God is mentioned and fruitfulness is emerging in the wilderness because of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit He must be God if he has the power and ability and authority to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is not some charismatic experience that happens again and again and again and and, and you're baptized and and again there you are on the floor convulsing and speaking in another tongue or whatever it is. This is a baptism, a one-time baptism that leaves you spirit-filled and from that point spirit-led spirit sealed one baptism with many fillings throughout the rest of your life he will baptize you with the spirit he will dip you dunk you as it were into the spirit for a life of living in the spirit and walking in the spirit and being led by the spirit isaiah uh, ezekiel 36 prophesied a time when god would pour out his spirit Upon his people, give him, giving them his spirit, to cause them to walk in his ways and to obey his statutes. This is that time. The greater baptizer has come. And when we turned to him in faith, and when he snatched us from out of the, the ex, out, out of our sin and out of our death, and he caused us to be born again, he baptized us there with his spirit. But that's not all. He baptizes with. He says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire and fire. Now, this verse sits right in the middle of two other verses on either side talking about the fire of judgment. And so it's natural, I think, to conclude that this fire is the fire of judgment. He will baptize you with either the Holy Spirit or with fire. And this fire at the end of verse 12 is unquenchable fire. Notice, his winnowing fork is in his hand. The imagery that he gives here is of a farmer who goes out to clear his threshing floor. He gathers all his wheat, and in order to clean the wheat and to separate the wheat from the chaff, he would get this winnowing fork, a type of pitchfork, if you will, and he would throw it up into the sky, and the chaff was so light that even a slight breeze would carry off the chaff and the wheat would fall to the ground. He would clear his threshing floor of the wheat. The chaff he would gather up and he'd burn it. And the wheat would go into the barn for harvest. And notice what he says of the Lord Jesus Christ. His winnowing fork right now is in his hand. He will come and the first thing he will do is begin to proclaim the kingdom of God and he will begin what he will end one day. And that is he will separate The wheat from the chaff. He's doing it now and he will do it on the great day of judgment. Right now, in every congregation, there is wheat and there is chaff. There are those who truly believe and there are those who are pretenders. Or maybe they don't even pretend. Maybe they don't even claim anything. Maybe they just say, I'm here because I got to be here. In that day, there will be a final, ultimate Separation, we'll read about that in chapter 13 when the angels come on that day at the Lord's command and they will separate the righteous from the unrighteous and they will all stand in judgment. But it's his judgment, the Lord Jesus, he will clear his threshing floor. I believe that's a reference to the final judgment. No one will be left. You will either be gathered into the barn of the kingdom or you will be burned with unquenchable fire, fire that does not get put out. And so we are given a choice here in this chapter either continuous repentance in this life or continuous fire in the next life. Everyone will be baptized. You will either be baptized in the Holy Spirit for a life of joy and fruitful service and delight in the glory of God, or you will be baptized at the end of the age in the lake of fire forever. That's the message. This was a serious message We have a scandalous baptism. And thirdly and lastly, we have a sacred anointing. A sacred anointing. And by the way, this baptism is scandalous for two reasons, right? It was for Jews who were considered to be God's people, now regarded as outsiders, who needed to repent and be brought into the fold of God's people, but it's scandalous for a second reason, because it was also for Jesus who was God's sinless son. And so you can imagine John's hesitation. I'm baptizing people for repentance. This is the Lamb of God, pure, spotless, immaculate, righteous, holy. He has no sin to repent of. So why should you come to me? That brings us to our last point, this sacred anointing. Sacred, because we see all three persons of the glorious Trinity Involved. The Son obeys, the Spirit descends, and the Father speaks. The Father speaks. Look at the text with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Everyone else there was traveling about 20 miles. Jesus travels here about 40 miles to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? It's very similar to Peter, right? Getting his feet washed. John chapter 13. Peter says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. In other words, if you don't accept my atoning cleansing, you have no share with me or my kingdom. I don't think that John is being proud here. I think he is realizing here that he has no business even being in the vicinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting, it's appropriate for us, you and I, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, we must fulfill the very thing we have been called to do. We must do what's right. It's righteousness, it's right. And then John consented. We ask, why was the Son of God baptized? It wasn't because he repented or needed to repent. He had no sin. One writer suggests six reasons. The obvious, obligation to fulfill all righteousness. Consecration. You remember that the Old Testament priests were washed and then anointed. Jesus submitted to water baptism. Then the Holy Spirit came upon him. Thirdly, commendation. Jesus gave his approval of John's ministry and thus obligated the people to listen to John and to obey John. But we know that the religious leaders rejected John's baptism. Another reason was for proclamation. This was John's official introduction of Jesus to the Jewish people here. Another reason, anticipation. This water baptism truly did paint a picture of what Christ came to do. Baptism was a picture of death and life again. You go into the water dead. You go into the water alive, that is. You you hit the water, you die symbolically, and then you're up in newness of life. Jesus in Luke 1250 would refer, would refer to his coming death as a baptism. remember when he was talking to James and John and their, they had their mom you know approach Jesus Jesus and say, "I want you to secure a good spot for James and John when you 're in your kingdom and you remember what he told them he says, "Are you able to be baptized with what i 'm about to be baptized with a baptism of death so this picture here in The very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus is already pointing us forward to his suffering and death on the cross when he dies and he goes into the waters of death and then he emerges three days later to life everlasting. But also I think this is another reason he's baptized is for the purpose of identification. He came to identify himself with sinful man. Though he was sinless, he came to identify with us. I think what's happening here is that John, or Matthew and John and all of this providential occurrence is really pointing us back to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, where God says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He's pointing us back to this prophecy to show us that this is the suffering servant of Isaiah. This is the servant who will restore my people and who will bring my glory back to the people. This is the servant who will usher his people into the new creation. Verse 16, notice. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him. Language that comes right out of the book of Ezekiel to have these visions of God. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now this is interesting. This imagery of the dove coming to rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This may very well be an allusion back to Genesis Chapter 1, verse 2, where we read of the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. The word in Hebrew to hover was elsewhere used to describe a bird fluttering its wings as it hovered in the air. In fact, ancient Jewish interpreters compared the Spirit's activity in creation to that of a bird, particularly a dove. In fact, a rabbi of the first century said that the activity of The Holy Spirit in creation was like a dove that hovers over her young without actually touching them. One writer said the spirits hovering over the baptismal waters is like a dove recalled as a dove recalled the spirits hovering over the primordial waters like a dove. The allusion to Genesis 1-2 showed that Jesus was the one who would accomplish the miracle of new creation, beginning with the baptism of the Spirit. So as we see the Holy Spirit there in the book of Genesis, hovering at creation 1.0, we see this dove coming upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming upon the Lord Jesus Christ who would bring about creation 2.0, the new creation. The Son obeys, The Spirit descends, and then lastly, the the Father speaks. The Father speaks, and notice what he says. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, very, very similar to the language of Isaiah 42. This is my servant, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. So here what we have at the very end of Matthew chapter 3 is what, and I guess I can coin this because I have not read this from any of my many, many commentaries or sermons I have listened to. What we see here is a Trinitarian huddle before they go and execute the work of redemption. We, we, We see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit here at the very beginning of the public ministry of Christ the spirit empowering the son and anointing the son to be our prophet to be our priest and to be our king to execute the great work of redemption to pay the great ransom to work mighty miracles to give us a preview and a foretaste of the new creation where there will be no suffering and no death and no sorrow or crying the spirit of god coming upon him to empower him to do everything he will do for the glory of god and the joy of his people and the father lastly saying this is my beloved son I love him so much. Infinite love for the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What's interesting is that when we see, looking back at Genesis chapter 1, we see the Trinity there. Because again, we we want to read the Bible canonically, that is, in light of the whole canon of Scripture. And so where we see the Trinity, and Genesis chapter 1 saying, let us make man... Here we see him. Here we see the Trinity at the beginning of the New Testament coming together and saying, let us save man. Let us save man. The Father approves of him. The Spirit empowers him. And the Son will then immediately, as we'll see next time, be led into the wilderness to do battle with the great serpent. And his victory there will be a preview of his victory at the end of his life and at the end of the age. The question for you this morning, believer, is are you walking in biblical repentance? If not, repent and continue to repent. That's the only safe resting place. You wanna know God's will for your life today and God's will for your life tomorrow is to be casting off sin as often as you can, as much as you can. How do you sustain a life of doing that? How do you maintain that in the midst of motherhood and parenting and the difficulties of work and and everything else you got going on? By making sure that you are finding yourself at the fountain of God's glory to be satisfied with his presence, with his glory, with his greatness. Because if you are not satisfied in God, Sadly, your heart will long for satisfaction in something else. You will long for something else. God created you for his glory. So repent. Celebrate the fact that the king has come and along with the king, his kingdom. Repent. And continue to repent.